Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden. Don't you know we're gonna have a solitaria? Hey everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman back with you for the 86th or 87th uh, uh, Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition meeting, a gathering, Zoom call, whatever we want to call it. It's great to be together. This is almost two years now. And uh, we have uh, 52 people on the chat and uh, uh, with us, and we have a magnificent uh, presentation coming up from Miles Rappaport, uh, co-author of 100% Democracy uh, from the New Press. We're going to uh, publish his uh, uh, link in the, in the chat, but we are also on the Progressive Radio Network, airing at Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time uh, out of New York City. Uh, we, uh, we have been doing this for almost two years. As I say, we cover the peak uh, issues in, uh, having to do with our elections. We also get deep into the weeds on, uh, on solar energy, uh, the transition, the parallel transition, uh, not only to democracy in terms of voting, but also in terms of our energy supply. We are still in the midst of the craziness from Ukraine, and at some point we will talk a bit about uh, those nuclear power plants. Uh, I have to say, there was a landmark event, which is that the New York Times ran a front-page story on the shift change at Chernobyl. You know that the world is hanging by a thread when the New York Times devotes a major front-page piece to um, uh, the, uh, uh, the staffing of a dead radioactive waste site. And that, this was a big deal and an ongoing big deal. And at some point uh, in today's talk, uh, we, will, we will discuss that uh, a bit. We we are, the program is going to go uh, pretty straightforward today. We're going to devote uh, most of the first hour or all of it to Miles Rappaport. We're really honored to have Miles with us. He is the co-author with E.J. Dion of a major new book uh, on what we call civic duty voting, which we have not discussed. That phrase, in the two years that we've been doing this, the 80, 80 plus um, uh, sessions, no, we, I have never heard the phrase civic duty voting. So Miles is going to tell us about that. And um, uh, he's a really impressive guy, has been the Secretary of State of the state of Connecticut. And also, uh, this is, this is a, a, a credential that can only belong to one, one human being. He conducted a training session for incoming secretaries of state that included the two most infamous secretaries of state that we've had, uh, J. Kenneth Blackwell of Ohio and Catherine Harris of Florida. Man, you, you cannot top that. Uh, after, when Miles is done, uh, and we're looking forward to a really lively hour, uh, we're going to, uh, at the top of the next hour, 6 o'clock Eastern time, we will uh, be introduced by my reason to two great women from Texas who are going to give a rundown of what's happening in Texas with the insane voting situation there. And from there, we are going to segue into an even more insane voting situation in, in the state of Ohio, where they actually do not have districts uh, available for the upcoming election. And at this point in time, cannot, I, I cannot legally conduct uh, an election for the state, the Ohio State House, or the congressional delegation. It's astonishing the situation in Ohio. We can certainly touch on it, Miles, uh, with you while we're discussing your book and, and all the ins and outs of voting, in which you are a major, major expert, and we're really honored to have you with us. So that's the, the rundown. Uh, we will, as I say, slip in some discussion about what's happening in Ukraine and also with uh, renewable energy. Um, and of course, the, the floor will be open to many of you, to all of you uh, as we proceed. So what I'd like to do with the great Miles Rappaport here is uh, have a, um, a presentation, Miles. We discussed this uh, on your book and the, the major issues in your book. And then we will open up the floor for general discussion. We got plenty of time. So uh, just um, uh, uh, and, and, and as the former, you're the first uh, Secretary of State or former Secretary of State. We have had an Assistant Secretary of State from North Carolina, um, but you are the first full-on 
Secretary of State. You were the Secretary of State of Connecticut. And um, your experiences are tremendous. And your book is fabulous. So uh, tell us if you, you want to start, what is civic duty voting? Well, it's interesting. We actually, in the book, which is called uh, 100% Democracy, uh, uh, the case for universal voting, um, it's a little bit of an interchangeable uh, uh, name in our point of view. I'll show you the book just so you can see it. Um, uh, I was privileged to... Good, straightforward cover. Very clear what you're doing there. Yeah, and uh, privileged to write it with uh, the great uh, journalist E.J. Dion, who I'm sure all of you know, uh, and also with a forward by Heather McGee, who uh, worked with me at Demos for many, many years and I think has been just an outstanding uh, uh, advocate for racial justice in the country. So I'll, I'll start by giving a little bit of my own history and how, we, how I came to this issue, if I can do that, Harvey. Yes, um, please. So uh, I was, uh, I've, I've, I've had four careers. I was a community organizer in uh, uh, Chicago, Massachusetts, and Connecticut uh, for about 15 years. And then I spent 15 years in Connecticut politics. I was a state legislator uh, for 10 years um, and the chair of the elections committee, which then led me to run for secretary of the state um, in 1994. So I served from 1995 to 1998. Uh, and you're right, Harvey, in the 1999, I was hired by the National Association of Secretaries of State to train the new class of secretaries, because I guess they thought I could tell them something that would be useful about how to do a good job. And uh, one of those was indeed Ken Blackwell. The other, another was Mary Kiffmeyer from Minnesota, and another was Catherine Harris from Florida. So it was uh, a really interesting uh, class for sure. So anyway, I, I want to jump in real quick. Uh, and tell you that I had the honor of being in the physical presence of John, uh, of Ken Blackwell in Ohio when he referred to my co-author with an obscene epithet that I can't repeat because we're on the radio. So that's J. Kenneth Blackwell. There you go. Okay, and he didn't he didn't uh, he didn't get that from my class. <laughs> anyway, um, so you know I have been, and then from from being Secretary of the State. Um, I was spent uh, 14 years as the president of Demos in New York uh, and two and a half years as the president of Common Cause. So I have basically for the last 45 years been working in one way or another uh, on opening up the democratic process, uh, working on campaign finance reform, working on not the nomination process in Connecticut, which was closed, um, and basically working on voting rights and expansion of voting opportunities for a very, very long time. And I am a complete believer in the, in the kind of reforms that have been on the agenda of the democracy movement uh, for the last 20 years. So, you know, and I think all of you uh, kind of know the litany uh, of same-day voter registration, automatic voter registration, restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions, uh, pre-registration of 16 and 17-year-olds, early voting, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, in, in, in enhanced mail-in voting. Uh, you know, there's a, there are kind of eight or nine or 10, uh, you know, reforms that people have worked on. And I believe they make a difference. I worked a lot on same-day voter registration and all of the studies have shown that that does, that in and of itself increases voter turnout by about 5%. Uh, uh, what you call it, uh, you know, accounting for all the other variables, battleground state, non-battleground state, big state, small state, it does make a real difference. On the other hand, I started to think about uh, five or six years ago that, um, you know, after all of the work that I had done and so many people in the democracy movement, including, you know, I assume all of you, um, you know, trying to uh, uh, increase participation, make our system fully representative and fully inclusive, we have moved the needle. I think that's important to say, uh, you know, there's been a huge amount of resistance and we're under under threat and in a very fraught situation right now. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But we also have moved the, the needle forward. You know, 40 states have some form of early voting. 23 states have same day registration where there was only six 20 years ago. Um, there has been real progress on restoration of voting rights for people who for returning citizens uh, and the like. But the truth is we haven't moved the needle very far. Uh, we had a record turnout for the United States in 2018 in the midterms, which was just about 50 percent turnout and a record turnout um, 
for 66 per, for uh, the 2020 presidential election, um, despite the pandemic, because all of these things were in place that are now being stripped away. Uh, but that was 66.5% or 66.2%, depending on how you sort of count it. So that really ranks the United States pretty, pretty low. And so I started to raise the question with myself, what is it that we might do that would really move the needle in a serious way? And I came across an article that E.J. Dion had written, um, you know, with um, uh, with William Galston. So both of them at the Brookings Institution back in 2015, which was called Universal Voting, Why the United States Needs Mandatory Voting um, and What We Should Do and How What Would Be the Advantages. And I read it and I was really moved by it. And I, it's interesting that I thought, you know, in 35, 40 years of doing this work, I had never really had a discussion or heard about that idea. Um, and so it really struck me and it stayed with me. And then when EJ, and I, EJ came to Harvard, he and I decided that we were going to do a working group. And we put together a joint working group, which was part of the Kennedy School, uh, the Air Center of the Kennedy School and the Brookings Institution. EJ and I co-chaired it. And we spent almost two years studying uh, how universal voting had worked uh, in not just Australia, although that's a really good case in point, but in 26 democratic countries around the globe that use some version of universal voting. Uh, we had we brought in we did some polling. We brought in people who were opposed to it and had real serious discussions with them. Uh, we looked very closely. We had really terrific lawyers who were part of the working group um, at whether it was constitutional, what the constitutional issues would be raised and objection to it would be, and does it pass constitutional muster? All that culminated in the pro production of a report in 2020, which is, you can still get uh, from the AI Center called, uh, and it was called Lift Every Voice, The Urgency of Universal Civic Duty Voting. And we put out that report. Of course, it was in the middle of the pandemic. It got some attention. It was written up in the New York Times. It was on C-SPAN, um, you know, kind of uh, a number of times, et cetera. And, uh, you know, about 4,000 people actually tuned in to the opening presentation itself. Um, so, you know, we continued to kind of work on it. And interestingly enough, uh, shortly thereafter, got a call from the, a woman named Diane Wachtel, who some of you may know, uh, who is the president of the New Press, and she said that she was a huge fan of the idea of universal voting and had been trying to get somebody to write a book about it for years. Um, and would I be willing to do it? And I said, yes, provided that uh, E.J. Dion can write it with me. Uh, and she said something on the order of twist my arm. And E.J., who was, of course, a fabulous journalist, um, uh, you know, and I did this together. We wrote it about a year. We finished writing it about a year ago. And it's production date, its official publication date is tomorrow. So you are on the eve of the actual publication date uh, of 100% of democracy. So what is, what is universal voting as we describe it? And where does it work? How does it work? And what are its advantages? And I'll try to do this in a relatively short period of time. So what it is, is basically making the act of participation in elections a requirement, a civic duty, a requirement of every citizen. Um, you know, it's a it's an unusual idea in the United States context. But as I say, it's been tried in Australia. We'll just say for it's been in existence for 100 years. And it's also exactly the way we treat jury duty and for the same reason. So I think this is a very, very powerful analogy for me, which is uh, the jury, the uh, we want jury duty is mandatory for every citizen. If you're on the if your name, if you have a driver's license or if you're on the voting roll, you're going to get called for jury duty and you're required to serve. And nobody says, wow, what an infringement on my civil liberties that I'm required to, to, to serve on a jury. It's what we have become accustomed to and what we have done uh, for years. And the truth is that the argument about voting is exactly the same. The reason we want everyone to serve on a jury is so that people will be judged by a jury of their peers. And in the sense and the peers being the entire population of the United States, not a skewed population, not a not a racially uh, biased population, not an age biased population, but a full representation. I think the exact same thing applies to voting, that what we want are decisions about the laws that are governing us and the people who are making the laws to govern us to be made by everyone so that we have a representative electorate, not one that is older, whiter, 
richer and more educated, which is the electorate that we have now, but one that is fully inclusive and fully representative of our population as a whole. Um, so, uh, you know, does it work? Did we, what is, yeah, well, let's take a look at Australia. You know, it's interesting. It has, uh, uh, it has a long history there. It was enacted the first in 1924. There's never been a serious attempt to uh, repeal it. In the election before universal voting was adopted in Australia, there was about a 60% turnout, pretty much, pretty much what we have today. And in the first election after that, there was a 90% turnout. So there was a 50% increase and 90% of the people who are voting. That has uh, maintained itself. The last election, the, uh, the last parliamentary election that they had in Australia, they had 91.9% turnout. Um, people like the system. Uh, the 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 uh, Australia Election Commission understands that everybody that everybody is going to vote, and in order for everyone to vote, they need to make it possible, easy, uh, and encouraging for people to do so. So they have all of the things that we would like to see on our agenda. They have early voting. They have mail-in voting. They have um, uh, election day as a holiday. The elections are all on Saturday. They have a tradition that is called democracy sausages. Uh, which is basically that that uh, grassroots groups or you know civic organizations will set up uh, booths right outside the polling places. People will go vote, and uh, after that they hang around and they have sausages and uh, etc. So I think it's really a kind of a, 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 a proof. You know, it's it's a proof of concept that has been going on for a hundred years. By the way, people probably remember that the uh, the secret ballot was invented in Australia. Before that, the United States had ballots where that everybody could watch and see who you were voting for. And we went for the first few years that it was adopted in the United States. It was actually called the Australian ballot. So this is another chance for us to learn something from Australia and import something that will be good. What are the key advantages of it? Well, the first one is obvious, which is immediately if it were adopted and I'll come back to how it might be adopted in a state or in uh, um, or the federal government, the state, or municipal governments, uh, uh, you know, turnout would jump uh, astronomically and immediately. And turnout would also be much more reflective of the population as a whole. So those are the two points I've made already. But a few other points. One, I think once you had the expectation that everyone was going to vote, the institutions of our society um, would bend themselves, would adjust themselves, would adapt themselves uh, to that. So if I were a principal of a high school and every 18-year-old were going to be required to vote, would I make sure that civic education was a more important part of the curriculum than it is today? Uh, I think I would. If I were an employer, whether a nonprofit uh, employer or a, or a corporate employer, and I knew that all of my uh, employees were required to vote, would I make it more simple and more uh, available to them to do that? I think it would. And on and on. And I think civic organizations would, uh, would do the same, making sure that the people that they served were um, eligible and were not just eligible, but uh, able to access the polls. So that's number one. I think that would really happen institutionally. It has happened in Australia, and I think it would happen here. Secondly, I think campaigns would change. I mean, right now, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of things that are wrong with campaigns, money in politics, gerrymandering, uh, which you'll talk about in Ohio, et cetera. But um, I think that, um, you know, one of the worst things is that, that, that uh, campaigns are contests of turnout in which the strategy that you use, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you know, is to just, you know, get out a larger percentage of your vote than the other vote. And in the worst case scenario, which we have seen, uh, the effort is to suppress the vote of people who are going to vote for the other team or for another candidate. And so if you can suppress the vote of your opponents and encourage the, and, and engage, enrage to engage uh, your own voters, then you win. Doesn't happen on, in, uh, you know, in a situation of universal voting because everybody will be voting and therefore everybody will be listening all of the time. And so what will so in addition to saving a lot of money on voter turnout, uh, campaigns would have to adjust their message so that they are always talking to everybody, always trying to persuade people that they should vote for their for the party's candidates uh, or for me, whoever I, you know, as as the case may be, as opposed to just, you know, kind of uh, 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 ginning up uh, our own base. And I think that would be a really, really uh, healthy thing. 
And finally, there is actually quite a bit of evidence in the countries that use it that when citizens are in fact required to vote, they do take the time uh, and make the time to educate themselves about their choices, to educate themselves about the issues to a significant uh, degree. Every person, of course not, but, uh, but that, that is clearly the case uh, where universal voting has been adopted. So I think it's a really, you know, it's become in my mind a really intriguing idea, one that, we, that our goal in writing this book uh, is to try to put on the agenda for public discussion and the public debate in the country. Uh, it's, a long, it's a long haul campaign. We're under no illusions. The polling that we did, uh, by the way, most people, if they write a book and they, you know, adduce polling uh, to make, help make their case, uh, try to find a poll that will support, that people really are supportive of the idea. Not the case here. Uh, in the poll that we did, uh, only 25% of people initially um, support universal voting. Uh, um, you know, another 26% are open to it. So 50% of people are either, you know, not strongly opposed, but it's clearly an uphill climb. On the other hand, on the question of is voting us a right or a duty or both, 61% of people said voting is both a right and a duty. And I think that's a fundamental kind of feeling and premise that people hold and value that people hold that I think we can, uh, we can build upon. So we're on, on what uh, um, you know, uh, level might this be adopted? Well, you could imagine, it certainly could be adopted by federal legislation. There's no constitutional requirement, no constitutional amendment required. Um, you know, that's a long, that's a long uh, way off in my view. But I do think that it is highly possible that some states, you know, taking their role as, um, you know, laboratories of democracy, as Justice Brandeis said, um, you know, will in fact, uh, you know, think that this is something that they should try, especially states where there is some history of opening up the uh, opening up the process. Uh, but it also could be adopted municipally. You know, could could Minneapolis, uh, you know, try to adopt this or St. Paul uh, or Portland, Maine or other places? They could. In most cases, to be honest, and I mean, to be realistic, um, since constitutionally cities are generally speaking considered creatures of the state, that's the term, um, some form of enabling legislation or home rule legislation or uh, home rule permission would have to be given. So this will be, you know, that makes it a little bit harder in most places, but there are some states in which it has clearly been established that municipalities can in fact change their voting laws as they see fit for municipal elections. Anyway, so, you know, uh, our idea here is to begin to, is to get the idea out on a kind of a three-pronged basis. One, to try to make sure that the, the, the kind of, uh, in the intellectual journalistic policy circles, this is an idea that is being talked about actually tomorrow or the next day, we're not 100% sure, uh, there will be a Washington Post um, op-ed that EJ and I have written together that will sort of you know, put this idea out as a, as a viable idea for, for discussion. Secondly, we are hopeful that organizations who are in the democracy field uh, will put this on their agenda, not in, not in place of all of the issues from gerrymandering to same-day registration to voting rights restoration that people are working on now, but as a kind of a North Star long-term idea that people should think this is what we aspire to. What we aspire to is for everyone to participate. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, that's the second area. And then thirdly, I'm hoping that beginning in 2023, um, some legislators and some municipal officials will put this, will uh, submit legislation uh, and, we'll, and we'll get it seriously discussed. There were two bills, uh, one in Massachusetts, one in Connecticut that were introduced this year, neither of them passed obviously, um, to make voting uh, compulsory or uh, to create an obligation for every citizen to vote. Anyway, uh, so, and then, uh, so that's what we're hoping to do over the next few years. I wanna come back and just say a couple of last things and then let's open it up. Um, happy to open it up for conversation. Um, how does that actually work? So what, here's what happens in Australia. Um, and each state, by the way, uh, uh, 
any state that wanted to adopt this would have to carefully craft the legislation to make it accommodate to its local laws. I mean, as a former state legislator, I know this takes some real work. All we're doing is creating a kind of a, a concept and a template that uh, states can use and adapt as they see fit. So here it goes. What happens in Australia is basically there's a huge amount of effort that goes into letting people know when the election is, uh, getting people on the rolls. 96.3% of, uh, of eligible citizens in Australia are registered voters. Um, so all registered voters are then required to, uh, to cast a vote. They don't have to cast a vote for or against anything. They can cast a blank ballot. In Australia, they actually call them donkey ballots. Um, here, our recommendation, frankly, is that we um, we put a none of the above option on the ballot so that people can actually register, uh, you know, that they don't want to vote for any of the parties. It's perfectly legitimate. Um, if, they, if you don't vote in Australia, they send you a letter saying, hey, uh, how come you didn't vote? And you can write back and say, say I was visiting my grandmother in Perth or I was overseas on a, on a work assignment or whatever. Uh, and those are uniformly accepted. Uh, but if you don't say anything, they will send you a second letter. And if you don't respond at all to that, you get fined 20 Australian dollars, which is about $15 in US dollars. Um, our recommendation again is that uh, that would be a kind of light touch enforcement you could do the $15, you could do an hour or two hours of community service. Um, and, uh, you know, you could also assert a conscientious objection. There are religious and philosophical premises on which you might choose not to vote. That's a, that would, in our, again, in our recommendation, that would be acceptable. So I think this is really, you know, kind of a, a and it works in Australia, by the way, 13, the, the number of people who actually pay the $20, 20 Australian dollar fine is about 13% of the non-voters. And since 90% of the people voting, that's about 1.3% of eligible voters who are actually uh, assessed the penalty. So, um, and again, legislation in this country could, you could have a first election under the system that doesn't have um, you know, the penalties enforced uh, rather as a gets a warning or something like that. We have we did discuss last point I'll make. We did discuss the idea of doing this as an incentive based system. There are some countries where they use incentives uh, in some of the Latin American countries. You get a, a, a you get a, a discount on your passport or on your government uh, papers. You actually get preference for college admission if you have voted and otherwise things are equal. So there are different things that you could do. We could imagine a tax cut, you know, similar to a, um, a green energy tax cut or a senior citizen tax cut. Um, but it has been shown that the places where this actually works the best and gets the most turnout is where there is some uh, a requirement of voting um, and some enforcement, either a light touch or a medium touch. Nowhere is there a heavy burden of employment, but that's where it really works. A special lottery ticket. I just glanced at the uh, at the at the chat uh, that was actually tried in a couple of places. Uh, so that is, I think, an option. You get a lottery ticket if you vote and that it makes you eligible. So there are different incentive systems that you could use. But I don't want to shy away from the fact that that our recommendation, at least, is there is a requirement with a, with a light penalty attached if you absolutely do not make any effort to participate. Anyway, so I think with that, I'll stop. Um, I hope that this idea gets some traction. Uh, we're in it for the long haul. We don't expect that this will be easy. We're sure that there will be opposition from libertarians. Um, you know, there may be some opposition for people who are concerned about what even a small fine would do in the African-American community. We have had serious discussions with people in the civil rights uh, leadership of the civil rights organizations. The NAACP has endorsed this uh, formally. Other civil rights leaders uh, made the point, by the way, that uh, in the civil rights movement in the South during the 60s, one of the demands was that African-Americans be allowed to sit on juries uh, or technically speaking, they fought for the right to be compelled to serve on a jury. And they understood that the benefits of participation far outweighed the kind of uh, difficulty of the, of the, of the compulsion. So we think that uh, that goes on, uh, you know, that analogy works here as well. So anyway, let me open it up and see if there are questions. I'm sorry I haven't been able to uh, catch the chat. Harvey, if you want to kind of 
Oh yeah, go over and ask ask me some questions or moderate the discussion. The floor well, is yours. Putting, we're putting the links to your book in the in the chat. And thank uh, you very I have, much. I see that we have sixty five people on the call. Uh, we are, of course, this is going out on the radio, and you have. We've just been joined, by the way, by my co-author uh, Bob Fatrakis, um, who uh, is the guy who was <laughs> referred to with various epithets by J. Kenneth Blackwell. Uh, I want to give someday. I want to give Bob a plaque uh, of what of what uh, Blackwell called him. But uh, you have the uh, rare um, uh, uh, experience here of introducing an idea to the American uh, dialogue, which really has not been discussed much, virtually nothing. I mean, we had that experience in 1974. I was living with a group of people and we introduced the phrase no nukes. And, uh, you know, 60 years later, it's ubiquitous and nobody really thinks about how it started. Uh, there has been virtually no discussion in this country of mandatory voting. And, you know, when I looked at your book, it was, it, it really was kind of shocked at how much sense it makes. It really is. <laughs> because here we're, we're fighting for the right to vote. And, and of course, it's done um, uh, um, very selectively as to, uh, the, the fight over the right to vote is totally fraught with issues of class, race, gender. Um, and here, this idea kind of transcends all that uh, instantaneously, right. uh, which, which really struck me as incredibly brilliant. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, let me just quickly say the, the point you make about you know, it not being discussed. One of the things, one of the worst things I think about American political culture is that it, we really don't generally like to learn things from other countries. So, you know, uh, right. and this has been the proof of concept in Australia for a hundred years. It's no secret that this has been, but it just hasn't been discussed in the United States. So yes, I'm sort of feeling lucky that we have a chance to bring a big new idea and try to move it forward. Oh no, it's a really amazing. You should get t-shirts printed uh, as soon as possible. When we had no nukes t-shirts printed, they just went, went like wildfire. And I actually have him. Make sure you save it when you do this. I actually have in my archive at UMass in Amherst the very first no nukes T-shirt. So um, uh, let me give you <laughs> that that idea, that incentive, or maybe red hats. But at, at any rate, um, uh, it's it's a spectacular idea. I do want to say the main opposition will come from people like Donald Trump, who you quote in your book as saying, "If this happens, no Republican will ever get elected again." But that's another story. So um, um, let's go to the questions. I want to go first to Marilyn Bernstein. Uh, Marilyn, go ahead, please. You Are you in Massachusetts, Marilyn? Yes, I am. Okay, I go ahead. Gonna, I was going to ask, in Australia, you said like 93.7% or something like that are the people are registered. How do you, should, and only the, those have to vote? So how does that work? And so you, can you just not register if you don't want to vote? Yeah, I mean, yes, you, I guess, theoretically, you could refuse to register. But what happens is that, you know, kind of the, the, the Australian Election Commission just undertakes a massive, uh, you know, effort to get everybody enrolled. They have what's called the Federal Direct Enrollment Program. So similarly to automatic voter registration in this country, when you get, you know, whenever you have uh, get a driver's license or register property or have any contact with federal uh, Australian agencies at the federal or the state level, they register you to vote, you know, and you, it, it, you know, you have the, the burden of opting out. Um, you know, some people, you know, obviously there are some people who are very hard to find. There are homeless people. There are people who are, you know, kind of living off the grid. And so it's not a, a perfect system, but they just do a very energetic job of, of uh, enrolling people and they have had incredibly uh, good success uh, that way. And I think, by the way, you know, as we are moving forward on the voter registration front here with automatic voter registration, with online voter registration, with same day registration, with pre-registration of 16 and 17 year olds, you know, some of the states that are really the best best practices, you know, are are getting pretty close to a, a you know, a very high level of registration. And then the question is of the people who are registering uh, how about voting? So, yeah, it's uh, it is true that it, if you're not registered, you know, they you are not required to vote. But they have not over 100 years have the problem of people refusing to register in any significant numbers. Uh, and I like that in your book, there's a discussion of what the voting actually is like. And it turns into like a big block party 
right? I mean, voting becomes a national, uh, I assume it's, a, do you have one election in, in Australia? Is there a single election day that's a national holiday? How does that work? Uh, there is. I mean, it's, it's not just one election. There are state elections uh, as well, but they have a far fewer number of elections. We're, we're like a, an outlier in just the absolute, you know, proliferation of elections, national, state, um, local school boards, uh, et cetera. So some consolidation of that would probably be wise. They have far fewer elections, but they do, um, you know, the, the big elections are the parliamentary elections. Uh, but they, they, it's like a party, right? I mean, people show up and they, uh, you had said something about sausage. Um, yeah. I don't remember the exact uh, uh, reference. What is it? Yes, it's a, it's a thing there. They call it democracy sausages. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're served uh, at the booths, you know, that organizations set up outside the polling places and that's uh, encouraged. The, one of E.J. Dion's favorite pictures, by the way, it's not, our book is not a picture book, so it's not in the book, um, is a, a photograph from an Australian polling place with four people in there uh, from, the, from the rear in their bathing suits and holding their surfboards. Uh, they clearly have just come out of the water where they've been surfing, walked to the polling place, which was located right on the beach, cast their vote, and no doubt they're back in the waves in, in, in five minutes later. So, yes, it is. There is a very, very celebratory culture in it. And, uh, you know, uh, I think we can start an upward cycle in this country as well. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, but the, uh, is there a national holiday for the vote of a single voting day? Is yes, it, is there is. So yes. That's what, and course, it's always on a Saturday, always a Saturday. So uh, uh, I, I guess there aren't that many Jews in, uh, in, uh, in Australia to object to that, but there must be some way around that uh, for the. Well, there's early voting and mail-in voting as well. Okay. So if for, for any reason you're not able to vote on Election Day, there are plenty of other options. And, so, and of course, we would assume that the sausages are kosher. Uh, OK, uh, Jeffrey Barkdell, go ahead, please. And then, uh, and then Wendy, Jeffrey, real quickly, please. Okay, I got two. I got two real, two real, real quick. Please. One is there a puni punishment for those who try to su suppress the vote, suppress the vote in universal voting? And two, what do you think of the idea, universal voting plus ranked choice voting plus winning by popular vote equals the perfect and secure U.S. election system? That's one hundred percent bulletproof. There you go. Let me. Uh, yes, very, very good questions. And on, let me take the second one first. Uh, I'm a supporter of ranked choice voting. I think it actually does help. And I think it goes very, very well with uh, universal voting. So a system, you know, if, if Maine, for instance, adopt, which has ranked choice voting, also were to adopt universal voting, you have a system which everybody is voting. They're making their choices. Their choices are reflected, you know, in the order in which they make them. So I do think it's a, it's a really good uh, system. And you know, it's it's a uh, it's not part of the you know the the initial uh, kind of proposals that we've made. But the answer is yes. If everyone is required to vote, and you are attempting to suppress or keep somebody from voting, or you know mislead them into voting on the wrong day, you are interfering with someone uh, you know doing their constitutional duty. And so I think that the idea of you know having some penalties for interfering with people. Uh, fulfilling their uh, legal obligation uh, is uh, is something that uh, states could very well consider. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, uh, Jeffrey, for those questions. Wendy, Wendy, and then James. Uh, Wendy, you got to unmute. There we go. Thank you. Okay. Sorry, I was trying. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just to um, play devil's advocate and just to say, like, I so respect um, the book and the, the idea and um and bringing this conversation to be discussed just to shift the paradigm a little bit, but um, just to see like a little bit of a um, slippery slope. Cause I do love the idea of like an election day and, and like having the holiday would really um, open things up. But in a place where we have um, just restricted access, like where we have, um, they'll change the voting places the day of, and it's, they're already not supposed to do it. And I just see it as like when there's, there could be fines attached and um, giving them that, that the fines could increase if they can't find you. Um, in the place where we have more people in prison than anywhere else in the world, I just think it, it's like 
it's t- it would be better to be incentive based, like maybe a tax credit um, for doing your civic duty. Um, because if it's a duty, I don't know if it's a right. And even like the juror analogy, like we need jurors. So you have to be compelled to, to supply the right of having the jury. But with the, um, the voting, like it's just so easy for them to be able to take away your ability to get to the polls or do something shifty. So now you're criminal or you're you're financially liable and it could just really backfire for the most un- underserved and um, the, the least the, the least capable, the people with the least resources. So I just okay. think that there's some angles to look at. Thank let you let me one. give you two, let me answer two points. I think it's a very good question. And both of those are questions that we considered very seriously, both in the working group and in the writing of the book. So thank you, Wendy, uh, for asking them. Uh, in terms of the, the um, you know, uh, how, do you, how do you have a requirement to vote in a system where people are discouraged and there's voter suppression going on and they're moving to polling places and all that? Uh, we are, you know, it, it, it would be really hard to do that. I mean, I think that, you know, the idea that it would be adopted in a place where they were trying to discourage people from voting is very unlikely. However, we strongly support what we call gateway reforms. There's a whole chapter on gateway reforms. That is, it is a requirement. It is a kind of a precondition almost of successful universal voting that you have uh, 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 an election administration system that is oriented towards encouraging people to vote, allowing people to, to vote, making it possible for people to vote, and certainly not interfering with their right to vote. So, you know, the, we support all of the kinds of things then, and oppose the kinds of things that you're talking about. Secondly, the question of the fines, that, that was a real issue for us because, you know, our kind of nickname for the problem, nickname is a bad word, was kind of the Ferguson issue. You know, we're in Ferguson, you know, the, 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 the system kind of find people and then charge interest and penalties. And before long, you know, they, you're thrown in prison. So our recommendation, obviously the legislation would have to be written in such a way, but our recommendation is that the fine be very small, not accumulate interest, not accumulate penalties, and never be the basis of a criminal warrant. So that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very small penalty. Um, and also it can be uh, waived, you know, if there's a reason given, and also can be done by community service. So the idea is a very light touch of enforcement. We're trying to be respectful of the, of the issues that you're raising. But I still think that the net benefit of having a 90 or 90, 92% turnout over the 60 or 50% turnout we have now would be a huge benefit for the for our democracy and for the policies and the responsiveness of government. Absolutely, and thank you, Wendy, for that question. Very good. Uh, James and then Justin and then George. <clears throat> uh, James Starkwolf, um, can you unmute? Uh, we have uh, 72 people uh, on the line. We are live streaming and this will be uh, rebroadcast on Thursday on Progressive Radio Network. So we, we, we have a substantial group. Uh, James, you're unmuted. Go ahead. James Starkwolf. Thank you. It occurs to me that uh, under the draft, you know, we had the opportunity to uh, be a conscientious objector to all wars and a conscientious objector to this particular war. And some kind of that language might be helpful for uh, people that then would have to uh, provide some kind of theological uh equation that w- would preclude, th- preclude them from voting. Uh, and also that uh, we all know, as uh, Uncle Joe Stalin said, it doesn't really matter who votes, but who counts the vote. And so some kind of uh, chance to opt out that way, if that's worth commenting on, I'd like to hear it. Thank you. Very good. I can answer that very, very quickly. We absolutely do support uh, a conscientious objector status uh, that people can assert. Um, uh, and also, um, you know, the, the idea of a, of a ballot, none of the above ballot. So the whole point is not to, you know, sort of penalize people or force people to do anything against their will, but to kind of create an expectation that everybody is going to participate. And I think that will become part of the culture as it has in Australia if we adopt it. Of course, this comes with a uh, mandatory uh, trying to find candidates worth voting for. <laughs> as, as to quote Jim Hightower, you know, if God had intended us to vote 
uh, she would have given us candidates worth voting for. But there you go. Okay, um, Justin LeBlanc, please. And then George Ripley. And we are getting down to it. Uh, six minutes left. Miles, you're a great, great guest. Uh, really fascinating stuff. You're a great presenter. Uh, we're really happy to have you on. It's been Thanks. excellent. Yeah, uh, I don't want to take up the, the next, the next uh, agenda item, though. So, yes, well, I'll be quick. Okay, please. Um, uh, uh, Justin LeBlanc. George and then Mary, go ahead. So you mentioned uh, a bit about creating a culture around voting and uh, the democracy sausages is a particularly interesting one because the joke is that, you know, being in Congress, you get to see how the sausage is made. Uh, so I, I'm trying to think of things that really uh, would create some of that culture. And one of the uh, initial aspects is say even in our own families, that if we voted on the meals that we're gonna have the next seven days, and even <laughs> you know, just from a list of options, hey, here's like 50,000 options, pick the top seven, doesn't require a lot of discussion, but it actually does uh, get us in the practice of voting and we get an outcome that we're looking for. The top seven things are the one that get eaten. and Lo and behold, that actually is a voting system in itself that I think is really more expressive than what we have right now, right? That one is almost like approval voting, right? I approve of these seven items versus what we have right now, which is just pick one. So it seems like people's enthusiasm is kind of limited by the amount of choice that they had. As Harvey just said, you know, we need to get good candidates. So did you have much discussion in your studies on that? Uh, uh, quickly, you know, no single policy is going to solve all the problems of our democracy. We absolutely need candidates that were that are worth voting for, and we absolutely need, uh, you know, uh, changes in the campaign finance system. We a lot. So this, but this is one area, which is the ability of people to vote, with people's votes being the best antidote to the big money uh, control of politics. Uh, so that's what we're addressing. Um, there are many other things that I hope people will continue to work on. Great. Very good. Uh, uh, George, Mary, and Michael. Go ahead, George. Uh, hi, Miles. It's one hey, of George. Things. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, a number of things pop up as issues, potentially. The, the concern some people have about a constitutional convention, some are pushing for it. Is this a, I'll, I'll just express a, a few ideas. Uh, the concern that, uh, some people will have libertarians about the creeping government uh, powers uh, and, and uh, those will be concerns. I'll just jump to my big issue is the EAC. Uh, you mentioned that the Australian Election Commission is, is, plays a role in this over there. Our EAC seems to be, um, Election Assistance Commission seems to be toothless and they never take the bully pulpit. They, they, they have such potential for taking the bully pulpit and, and taking an issue like this, for example, and showing the people and, and taking the lead on, on this discussion nationally. What do you see as, as their role and could they play a role in this? You know, the, the EAC was designed to be toothless. Uh, you know, uh, there was a whole debate about whether it should be called the election authority. Uh, but they wanted it to have con Congress people and frankly, secretary, my colleague, secretaries of the state didn't want to give it. So that's how it got the, the kind of very kind of bland name of the Election Assistance Commission. I do think absolutely we need a stronger and nonpartisan and professional and properly funded election uh, administration in this country. And, you know, could you change the EAC so it could be that you could or could you replace it with something that had a little more kind of robustness to it? I think that would be good. So anyway, yes, I agree with you, George, and I think that could happen. But uh, and we're 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 not there yet, but we're a long way from a lot of things. But we've got to keep working. Very good, thank you, George, Mary, and then Michael, and then we're almost out of time. Mary, real quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I think. Uh, I think hand in hand. Uh, the voting, what you're trying to do with voting is number one, I think 
you've come to the same conclusion I did over the years, but you're in a better position to get the word out than I am because I'm an unknown and you're out there. But I'm going to change that. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But my... Um, What's your question? I, think that I feel that it needs to go hand in hand with is at one time we had a rule that said if anybody was running for office, they were granted equal airtime or equal time. And we've changed that. Like this last election, we had 136 different parties running for presidency. But all we saw was the independents, the Democrats, and the Republicans. We didn't get to see our Green Party or any of the other parties. Not that I agree with them, the Liberal Party, the Tea Party, and all these other ones. But I researched all 136 of them to pick my guy or my girl. And I picked the Green Party this year. And he, too, had a female for a black vice president. And his, what he stood for was really good. But could I okay. see it on everyday media? We need to have that on at least the local level. Well, Not that's that, good... you know, that major corporations got to do it. But we need to see it on a local level that every single person that is running is heard from. We Absolutely. need to bring that back because how? That's a great point, Mary. Mary, Mary uh, uh, unmute Mary, please. Uh, uh, unmute her. Oh, Mary, that was really good. Thank you. Um, uh, Miles, is there a, an, um, an allowance for universal access to media uh, among candidates? Do you discuss that in your book? Uh, no, although I, I, I think Mary is right. I think that going back to the days where there was some equal time provisions, uh, you know, that the media was required to make sure that uh, various places were represented. Uh, I think that was a good rule and it ought to come back. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Michael, you'll have to be the last. It's 3.01 of uh, Pacific time, 6.01. We're going to move on to Texas in a minute here. Um, uh, Michael Brackney, Brackney, go ahead. Unmute, Michael. Michael, can you unmute? Two. There you go. Okay. Miles, uh, I'm really appreciative of your efforts to get lots more people voting. That's really great. Um, but I'm concerned about your support for ranked choice voting. As a, per, as a political science major, I've looked into alternative voting systems, and I support a form of score runoff voting, better known as star voting these days. And I'm wondering if you've looked into it and are able to compare the two alternatives star and rank choice uh no i think it you know i mean there are different forms there's approval voting there are different forms of kind of this proportional representation the proportional representation excuse me but i think there are a lot of different ways to do it and and there are pluses and minuses of all of them but i to to, to compare the two i really haven't done it so thank you michael okay i i want you to know that since you've looked into voting in Australia, that for, for over a hundred years of ranked choice voting in Australia, the system has not elected any um, third party or independent candidates in all that time. Ranked choice voting almost virtually always elects the same person that our one choice voting system elects. And that's why it's worth looking into a form of score voting that includes the runoff that is part of ranked choice voting. So star voting is kind of a blend of straight score voting and ranked choice voting. And it's really worth looking into because we need a system that will allow us to uh, buck the two party system. And 100 years of ranked choice and voting in Australia show that ranked choice voting will not do that. Right. Very interesting. All right. Thank you. I actually will look into it. So I appreciate your bringing it up. It's interesting okay. because we, Howie Hawkins of the Green Party has been a frequent visitor and he is a, a major proponent of ranked choice voting. Listen, uh, Miles Rappaport, the, the hour flew by. We've been honored by your presence. Uh, I look forward to seeing you here in California in early April. And um, uh, people, we, the book is, um, uh, hold on here. Uh, what, your editor is a wonderful person, Diane Wachtel. Uh, tell us the title of the book and how people can get it. 100% uh, Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And uh, uh, it's been in the chat maybe half a dozen times. Thank you very much. 
Um, and I want to just say thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great questions, a great group, and uh, you know, glad to be in this fight with you. Well, we'll have you back, uh, and I look forward to meeting you out here. And uh, I did skim through the book. It's a great book, everybody. So uh, take a good look. And uh, these Miles and EJ Dion are at the top of the heap here. Uh, very, very well established. Um, real, if, if you come back, we have to discuss your um, uh, experience with um, uh, uh, J. Kenneth Blackwell. Uh, we do have Bob Fatrakis on the line who, uh, <laughs> I, I, again, I can't repeat uh, how J. Kenneth Blackwell described my buddy and co-author Bob Fatrakis, but I'll, I'll tell you next time. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Take Good care, luck the guys. rest of this program. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. Um, uh, we Our next two items are Texas and Ohio, where um, elections are just in total chaos. Uh, Mike, if you could make Myla Reason a co-host, uh, that would be great. We have two great women joining us from uh, Texas, and then we're going to go into Ohio, where they cannot have an election. Uh, Ohio is in a situation now where people running for Congress or people intending to run for Congress or intending to run for the state legislatures can't do it because there are no certified uh, uh, districts. So that is truly astounding. Uh, by a reason, if you're ready to go, we will um, uh, have you introduce uh, Susan Young. Uh, and, um, and if you can unmute, uh, that would be great, Myla. Um, there we go. You're unmuted. Susan Young, if you'll unmute, uh, that would be good. Um, and, and Terry, and Terry is, is Terry on with us? Yes. Oh, great. Yes. Okay. So let's, if Mike, if you would, let's spotlight Terry Burke. Both, yes. both Terry Burke and Susan Young. I'd appreciate it if they could both be spotlighted now. And, right. um, it, it's my great, oh, hi, Susan. Um, it is my uh, great honor and privilege, and uh, Terry's here as well, I believe, and um, I'm hoping that if she turns her video on, she can be spotlighted so that we can all see one another. And- um, Not turning. Uh, oh, Terry, can, can you turn your video on? I'm trying to turn my video on. Give me all right, minute. sounds good. Okay, so um, we have these two amazing women from uh, Texas, and I'm so honored to be able to introduce them. Um, Terry Burke is go going to be talking to us about um, the competitive race for attorney general in the state of Texas. And Susan, is, Susan Young is going to be talking to us about the Sisters United Alliance project. And both Terry and Susan are on the board of uh, Sisters United Alliance. And, um, and, and after their presentations, um, we will be uh, having a Q&A with both of these extraordinary women. So um, let me first introduce uh, Susan Young. She is uh, retired after a diverse career in public service, investment banking, and nonprofit management. I also know her as uh, a member of the <laughs> uh, of the uh, Pacifica uh, governance structure. She and I, and and Harvey Wasserman, and many others, are are involved in Pacifica. But that discussion is for another day. Um, after uh, retiring. Uh, Susan was able to devote more time to civic and political engagement in the nonprofit uh, realm. Susan spent 10 years on the board of ACLU of Texas, followed by recent by a recent election, as I said, to the KPFT local station board. KPFT is one of uh, Pacifica's five uh, radio stations in this country. And Susan's also a director on the Pacifica National Board. In the political realm, Susan supports selected candidates in Texas. She's helping to organize a change in leadership for the Texas Democratic Party and is a founding member, as I said before, oh, a founding member, but uh, on the board, but also a founding member of Sisters United Alliance. Uh, Sisters United Alliance is a well-defined get out the vote program to reach forgotten progressive women voters 
um, and that's unique in Texas and maybe unique in the country. Sisters United is organizing for the fourth election cycle in 2022. Susan has lived in Texas for 30 years and um, welcome Susan. And yeehaw, as we yeehaw, say. exactly. <laughs> I'm an adopted Texan, but I've got my yeehaw in order. And uh, let me just give a shout out to KPFT, which is the only Pacifica station in a red state. And early on, we were bombed twice by the KKK. So uh, we're fighting the fight here. Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden. 